This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 238th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is universally regarded as one of the greatest stage and screen actresses of her generation, and indeed, of all time, Glenn Close. Close has won three Tonys for the play The Real Thing in 1983, the play Death and the Maiden in 1992, and the musical Sunset Boulevard in 1994. She has won three Emmys for the TV movie Serving in Silence, the Margaret Kammermeyer story in 1995, and the drama series Damages in 2008 and 2009, and she has accumulated six Oscar nominations for 1982's The World According to Garp, 1983's The Big Chill, 1984's The Natural, 1987's Fatal Attraction, 1988's Dangerous Liaisons, and 2011's Albert Nobbs, but she has yet to take home that little gold man, making her the most nominated living performer, male or female, without a win. But that could all change just a few months from now thanks to Close's remarkable performance in Bjorn Runga's The Wife, which Sony Classics acquired out of the 2017 Toronto International Film Festival and began rolling out in theaters on August 17th. For her portrayal of a woman who begins to reconsider her life choices after her husband of many decades is announced as the winner of a Nobel Prize in Literature, Close has garnered some of the best critical notices of her career, and awards notices will almost surely follow. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons Hotel in Los Angeles, the 71-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how she emerged from a highly unusual childhood and wound up on Broadway, and how Broadway, in turn, led to her breaking into the movies, albeit at a later age than most, how she made up for lost time by resonating with critics, audiences, and awards voters in a major way right out of the gate. Indeed, she scored Oscar noms for her first three films— the World According to Garp, The Big Chill, and The Natural, something that only Teresa Wright and Geraldine Page had done before her, and five Oscar noms in a span of just seven years, something matched only by Greer Garson, Betty Davis, Marlon Brando, and Meryl Streep. Why, at the height of her movie stardom, in the aftermath of Fatal Attraction, Dangerous Liaisons, and Reversal of Fortune, she returned to Broadway? And why, years later, she became the first major female movie star to become a regular on a TV series, first on The Shield and then on Damages, both for FX. And we should note that for the latter, she also became the first Best Actress in a Drama Series Emmy winner for a cable show. What it has been like for her, getting older in this business, 
and how she has still managed to secure great parts and do standout work in projects like 2011's Albert Knobs, which brought her Oscar nom number six 23 years after number five, and this year's The Wife, which could bring her Oscar nom number seven and maybe even Oscar win number one, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Glenn, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. We always go right back to the very beginning and ask, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Greenwich, Connecticut. My father's a surgeon and my mother was a wife and mom. Yes. And try to read up as much as I can, go back to some of the early interviews and stuff. And it it sounds like you had a pretty unconventional early youth, certainly (laughs) between the ages, I guess, of seven and 22. And I just wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on what was going on in your life and how you think it shaped you. Oh, my. (laughs) So we lived in backcountry Greenwich. So, I mean, we could have been literally in Iowa. We had a wonderful, my grandfather's farm that we ran around in. And when I was seven, my parents met this group called Moral Rearmament. Mm. And they were, I think, what you would call basically a cult group. Mm -hmm. But they were out to change the world. And they joined. And they sold our family home. And we went to live in various centers. Including in Africa, right? Well, Africa, it's, it's complex. They were still in it when my dad first went to the Congo, the Belgian, former Belgian Congo, D, DRC now. During their Independence Day celebration, my father speaks fluent French, and he was a doctor, and he went with kind of a mission there. And then the mutiny broke out, and doctors were leaving, and he walked into the big hospital in then Leopoldville, now Kinshasa, and said, I'm a surgeon, put me to work. And stayed there for 16 years. Oh, my gosh. Part of that, obviously, you were now back in the States, right? Yeah, I was back in the States still, and I finished high school and then went right into a youth group, traveled around the world for five years with that, and then it was after that that I broke away. And that was kind of like a folk music group? It was called Up With People. And what would you guys do? We sang songs and we, you know, had our little traveling outfits and we'd run and be very enthusiastic and, you know, it was very conservative. It was the youth arm of moral rearmament and I finally came to a point where I had to break out, so I went to college. Yeah, and so at, at 22, I know you, you start at College William & Mary and I wonder if you can share, I guess that's probably a little older than many of your classmates there, right? Because they're probably starting 17, yeah. 18. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the saving grace in a way was a guy, Howard Scammon? Yes, Who was he? Yes, Professor Scammon. He was the head of the theater department. And I always knew that I wanted to be actress from a very early age. I loved the early Disney films, and I wanted to knock on Disney's door and say, (laughs) I could do that, and can I be in a movie? So I auditioned for the first play of that year, which was Twelfth Night, and I got cast. And for the next four years, he was my mentor. I read that there was something, I think, that happened maybe during your senior year where you caught a Dick Cavett interview of Katherine Hepburn. What was that about? Yes, yes, yes. I was painting scenery backstage at night, and there was a little television on, and it was on came Dick Cavett's interview, her only interview on television, with Katherine Hepburn. And I was riveted. I was absolutely riveted. I've always, I always respected Hepburn. She seemed so much her own person, and 
I just loved, you know, her whole body of work and everything. And I watched and then something in me kind of penny dropped and said, if you want to do that, you do it. And the next day I went to the head of the department, Professor Scammon, Dr. Scammon, and he nominated me for two national organizations, URTA and TCG. And I got to the finals and ended up with my first job on Broadway in the fall. Wow. So really right out of school, you're heading to New York and on Broadway. I was going to go to LA. I was, I had been dating an actor who grew up as a child actor and I was going to go to Peggy Fury's acting class. And I already had a little fabulous little apartment off La Cienega. And then when I got that job, it really changed the direction of my life. I would have started out here in LA. You know, some people go out into the professional world with a very clear idea, I'm going to be a stage actor, or I'm going to be a screen actor. You were open to either? Yes. And when I got actually hired, that was where I went. And I think that was actually a great blessing to have my training in the theater. And I think it was six years before I got my first film. Well, it seems like your first show was in 74. Mm-hmm. And then six years later is the, yeah, the show that you were nominated for yeah. your first Tony for Barnum, 1980. And in that time, you did six shows in those first six years. So were you happy if things had just continued that way? Because by 1980, you're into your 30s now, you know, it would be later than usual. It was later than usual to start a screen career. If things had just continued with, you know, doing great work and noted productions in New York on and off Broadway, would you have been a happy camper? Probably, depending on my growth as an artist. And if I got wonderful roles that kept, I felt, you know, kind of pushing the envelope for me. So what was it that actually did happen, I guess, at one performance of Barnum in which you were playing Mrs. P.T. Barnum that led to the first film opportunity? Well, the great George Roy Hill and his casting director, Marion Dougherty, who really pioneered the casting director role. They were in the audience, and the show started with me sitting quite serenely in a balcony above the stage, knitting. <laughs> and there was something George told me later that it was that silence, that kind of stillness that he, that he liked. So I was called in to read for Jenny Fields in The World According to Garb. Had you also previously had one less pleasant interaction with a director. I read that you had maybe screen tested or something for one other filmmaker before that. And there was some commentary about, you know, your, your face moves too oh, much. Face too alive, too alive, too alive. Yeah. <laughs> Who was that? I think that was Milos Foreman. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he blew that call. Yeah. Uh, that was a little hard to uh, know how to respond. Right. To what do you, what do you do about it? <laughs> All right. So you get this first part as as this nurse and mother of Robin Williams' character in World According to Garp. How concerned were you about now having to act for the first time in front of film cameras? I think you'd done some TV stuff, but to be in front of film cameras, not to mention having to age something like 30 years over the course of two hours, were you intimidated? I was worried (laughs) because I had heard how difficult the transition was from stage to film. And I went up to George Roy Hill and said, I've heard this, the difficulty. And he said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I hope you'll take care of me. And he did. I mean, I somehow thought that 
when I saw the film, it would all be the back of my head or someone's <laughs> face as I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was really trial by fire. And I didn't at first really know what to do with my energy in a close-up. I was used to projecting you know, to the back of a theater. And it's a whole different adjustment right. as far as your energy. And I think you said that it was really during the your second film as Sarah Cooper in The Big Chill that you kind of figured out that you can do a lot less on film because it's picked up, right? You have the close-up, yeah, which doesn't exist in any other art form, and thought becomes very powerful. And was there actually one scene in The Big Chill where you realized that? Yep. It started, I was, you know, pausing silence and thought is when I'm talking about my affair with Alex, the Kevin Costner character, who only showed up as a mummy. As a corpse. (laughs) Yeah, it was in that scene that I realized thinking in a close-up is very powerful and also pausing. I, I tend to speak fast. And a lot of times, just as an exercise, I will just force myself, even now, Mm -hmm. to go slower. Mm -hmm. And in that going slower, you can find more moments. Yeah. In between those two films, so somewhere in 82, I think, you did another off-Broadway show that I think you didn't initially get, but eventually did, and then would revisit all these years later. And that, of course, is Albert Nobbs. And I want to ask you, because it sounds like you also, from that frustrating initial audition, came away with an acting coach that you worked with until not long before his death earlier, I guess just two months ago. Mm. This is Harold Harold, Guskin. Harold Guskin. What led you to reach out to him and what was his approach? I loved this story about a woman who was disguised as a man, as a butler in Victorian Ireland. But to go in an audition for a part like that, playing a woman disguised as a man, I, you know, I did some sort of preparation, but I went in and I just felt I was terrible. So I stopped <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm boring myself, so I must be boring you and I'm just going to go home. <laughs> My agent heard later that that was the most interesting thing that had happened all day <laughs> and asked me to come back. Meanwhile, I I was not a good auditioner. I would try to keep myself on this knife edge. And if anything happened, the things started slipping away. I had no, no ability to kind of bring it back. So I called up Kevin Klein, who was a friend, and because he had talked about Harold Guskin, this great, but he had actually gone to school. So I called up Harold. I went in and, and he gave me some very simple things to do. I went back and got the part. And then 30 years later, made it into the movie. That's great. And we'll, we'll come to that. But <laughs> I guess also people don't realize that somebody who is as, you know, revered as an, an actor as yourself would still continue to work with a coach through it all. It's not like you're done learning at some point. No, I actually would use Harold. And I didn't, I have to say, I didn't use him terribly much in the last, like, I'd say 15 years yeah, or so. Yeah. But where he was incredibly valuable for me is that I basically am a shy person. And the strange thing that happens when I'm confronted with a character like the Marquise de Martoy mm-hmm. or is that I get shy in front of that character. <laughs> and so what I would do with Harold is force myself to speak out, you know, to say things as that character until I would get over that, that shyness. 
Amazing. It's a strange thing. He was wonderful and sorely missed. Well, you were, in terms of your film career, even even though you maybe started later than some, you made up for lost time quickly because if, if you go back and look at it, first role, Garp, Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination, second role, Big Chill, Best Supporting Actress nomination, and, in, by the way, in the same year when you got Tony Wynn for The Real Thing and Emmy nomination for Something About Amelia, and then the third film role, The Natural, another Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. That one, I think you've—I hope you're joking because you're undercutting your own contributions there, but you, you give a lot of credit for that to Caleb Deschanel. I do. Why? <laughs> because the kind of the iconic shot from that movie is when she stands up in the, in the stands. Right. And they had designed this wonderful hat that the setting sun would shine through that look, gave me this kind of angelic glow. Right. And Caleb, they actually shot it when the sun was coming through that's the slit in the back of the stadium. It was very thought out. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Caleb. <laughs> well, I, I think the whole concept, though, of seeing you as angelic or as an earthy kind of person based on these early characters was something that you maybe were a little frustrated by, right? Because I think that it's limiting probably if you want to show that you can do other things. And so I wonder how much that had to do with your being drawn to both Jagged Edge in 1985, where you played one of the first female lawyers that I think has shown up in popular entertainment. And then, of course, in Fatal Attraction two years after that, as a much sexier character than you'd been allowed to play up to that point, right? Yeah. I loved the character in Jagged Edge because I remember thinking that she was a very good lawyer, not such a good mother, you know. And I was very much drawn to the fact also that Bob Loggia played this wonderful, crusty, cynical detective. It was a really winning combination. And then, of course, Jeff Bridges. But the thing that made me proud, Annie Roth designed some killer suits for that character. And there was one suit that I think of her as the iconic suit of the movie was this beautiful navy blue suit with a kind of a pencil skirt and a, and a white shirt. And it was the 80s, so the huge shoulders. <laughs> but after that, the success of that movie, L.A. Law came out. Yeah. And Susan Day was just exactly like that character. And I thought, yes. You created the archetype. And I remember yeah. people saying they didn't know if a movie would fly with a woman, at, you know, starring as a, as a lawyer. Well, how about a woman starring as a publishing executive and spurned lover? That was, you were very enthusiastic about playing this part, but not everyone else involved with it initially was, right? You had to kind of win that well, opportunity. Well, thank God I didn't know how much they didn't want me. <laughs> and Sherry Lansing has since written about it in her book, and I've read her accounting of it, and it's absolutely true. But I didn't know how much they didn't want me. I, when I read the script, my temperature lowered. I, I was cold when I finished it. I sat down and read it in one sitting. It totally grabbed me, but I wasn't sure about the rabbit. <laughs> I thought that was over the top. <laughs> And now it's a whole genre. And so I, I kind of let a, let a few days go by, and but I could not get it out of my mind. And I called my agent and said, I really, I would love to play this part. Mm -hmm. And apparently Sherry and Stanley Jaffe was her partner. They were so sure that I was wrong, but they gave me an audition because of my past work. 
I had to fly out to L.A., and they didn't even meet me because they were so embarrassed they, that they'd have to say no. Because they felt on the just on the basis of the characters you played on screen up to that point. They didn't know if I could be sexy, which is funny. Well, I'd played Jenny Fields in a white <laughs> nurse's outfit right. and Sarah Cooper, who's kind of the mom of the group. And mm-hmm. so I guess when we, we I was shown into a room and there was Michael Douglas and a video camera, which is like. I'm. I just want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> but you've done something with your hair, right? Well, I had long hair at the time, and I'm really bad with my hair. So I didn't you know. I'd put it up, and then I put it back in a ponytail, and I and then I said, oh, you know, fuck it. I just, I'll just <laughs> go wild, you know. So it was really my own hair, and I think that was probably good as well. But it was after we had been working and putting things on tape for a while that actually Adrian called them down the hall and, and said we, we got our the rest is history our Alex you said it, that at least around that time it was the case that you had prepared as much for that character as any up to that point which I think included meeting with psychiatrists and I just wonder what insight they were able to give you about that character and what in hindsight you're maybe surprised they were not able to tell you about that character because a lot of our attitudes about mental health which is I know a important cause of yours outside of mm-hmm. film they have evolved since then. Very much so. I mean, it's astounding to me thinking back. I went to two different psychiatrists. I gave them the the script, and I said, I want to know, number one, is this behavior possible? And number two, if it is, why? What would create it? No mention of possible mental disorder or something that would have triggered something. I have since learned that that has been used in psychiatry books as an extreme example of borderline personality, but that's triggered by something. So what what we came up with and what I was playing was a character who had been incested repeatedly over a number of years from a very early age by her father. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of ambiguity about her father, but of course it's just hinted at. Wasn't but it I was like you can. Why don't you just hit me if if you're if you're yeah. not going to be with me or something? Yeah. Yeah, but also that scene where one of the whys I asked was so she would she spied on the little girl, which is probably the age that she was being abused, being given the rabbit, and then she runs and and throws up in the hedge. No, why? And they said if you were forced to do something, you know, to have oral sex, and you were a little girl, it would make you gag and throw up. That is their trigger reaction. Mm-hmm. So things like that really made me love that character. Mm-hmm. So that's who I was playing. Well, and as a result of coming to feel protective of this character, and I guess you've said you have to kind of see things through their perspective in order to play them authentically. But in this case, it was because you'd come to feel protective of her in a sense that you were fairly pissed off when they wanted to change the ending? How did that all come about? I couldn't believe it. I, th- I thought they were joking. This is six months after it's in yeah, the camp. six months. Luckily, I hadn't cut my hair. <laughs> I think Stanley Jaffe called me up and said they were going to change the ending because in testing it, the audiences were so upset by Alex's behavior that Having her kill herself wasn't enough of a punishment. Because she was framed. She had sort of she fra- framed. Yeah. Out. And well, she didn't know that she killed herself and his fingerprints were on the knife. Mm-hmm. So he was sent to jail. Mm-hmm. And people don't want beautiful Anne to be left and Michael to go to jail. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so instead they Certain. say to you, what, what do they want from you? 
well, there was kind of nothing was on the page. I didn't have anything to read. And I first I refused for two weeks. I refused. I said, I won't do it. She's not a psychopath. She's somebody, you know, who needs help. <laughs> and it was pretty tense. Mm-hmm. It was pretty tense. And I remember I ca- called up, I actually called up Bill Hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I called up Bill, but I said, this is happening. And, and I feel like I'm totally betraying the essence of this character. What shall I do? And he said, well, you've made your point. You've made your point. And if they, you know, if you want the movie to be released, you got to go along with it. So I did under great duress. Yeah. Are you pleased with how it all turned out? I honestly think that it would not have been the hit that it was Mm -hmm. without that new ending. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, the lesson I learned from that is, okay, so the audience wants to think that everything will be okay in the end. And they've grown to love Ann Archer and that adorable little girl. Most of all, I mean, Michael, but that's all about Catharsis. Mm -hmm. And catharsis is when something happens so that there's a possibility that order can be restored. Mm -hmm. And in Greeks and in Shakespeare, it's bloodshed. Mm -hmm. So they shed my blood. (laughs) Well, they shed my blood and the audience (laughs) felt better. And they I believe a different audience got a big kick out of it when, you know, several months later, a very pregnant Glenn Close shows up <laughs> oh with Michael Douglas to present at the Oscars. <laughs> and I think they figured out a different ending in their Oh, heads. my God, that was but. so funny. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking again. I was really pregnant. I was eight right. months pregnant. Michael and I walked out to give an award, and they all started laughing. <laughs> I thought, of course she was right. Right. She was right. She was pregnant. <laughs> so I want to come back to the character you referenced from Dangerous Liaisons, which was a year after that, because you've said that there's a scene in there that you have with John Malkovich. That's one of the scenes you're proudest of in, in your career, I think, where you talk about how your character essentially invented herself, right? Right. What was it about that moment that, you know, out of, you know, in that Did film, I say that? Yeah. Hmm. Gosh, that's such a brilliant script that there are a lot of moments in that film. I actually, that's actually that you would bring up that that scene because we had tried to film that scene and I had given birth to my daughter, Annie. She was seven weeks old when I went over to France. I had just weaned her. That's why I have such wonderful chest in that (laughs) movie. But I was absolutely bone tired. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't remember my lines. I had a <laughs> long line, yeah. lines in that. And it was mortifying. It was the only th- time it happened to me. Stephen Fear sent me home to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so we came back the next day and, and shot it. Again, it's why I love characters like that. Because basically, it's a speech about how she survived in a world that is totally, totally dictated to by men. And how most women in her class could be ruined by a word. And she refused to let that happen because when she came out of the convent, she observed and she observed how people used each other and how women were used by men. And she refused to let herself be put into that position. She would rather ruin them. And she had learned how to ruin them rather than have herself ruined. But the truth, and also the other thing I loved about her is that she loved him. She, he was the love of her life. Mm-hmm. And I think vice versa, until he fell in love, mm-hmm. you know, with Madame de Dorval, with mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer. 
there's some connective thread there with between that and Albert Knobs, right? I mean, another person just living as if from a different time and not really Except being... The, the Marquise de Merteau is very much in control and Albert has no control. Right. So it's, it's different. I think, if anything, it's cousins to Lion and Winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two people who love each other who basically can't live together. Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners to keep score at home... We mentioned your first three film roles. You got Oscar nominations. Then there was, again, Fatal Attraction and Dangerous Liaisons, meaning five in seven years, which is something only Betty Davis, Greer Garson, and Merrill have ever achieved. It's a pretty amazing thing. But then you go almost right into another very complex part with Reversal of Fortune, Sonny Von Bulow, wife of Klaus. And this seems tricky because a lot of different things could have gone wrong here. And you've talked about the fact that maybe not written with as much detail as certain other characters, you had to really kind of put your own spin on that one, right? Brilliant script by Nick Kazan. Just, I mean, the fact that someone in a coma narrates the story, just wonderful writing. So I knew I wanted to do it. What I found difficult is that Sonny Von Bulow at the time was still alive Uh in Presbyterian Medical Center surrounded by flowers and Persian rugs and the best care possible. And no, everyone was incredibly protective of her. So there was nobody who was an intimate friend of hers or even, you know, an acquaintance who would talk to me about her. So as brilliant as the script is, is is very much from the man's point of view. Mm-hmm. But it was a great character. And I, I took it, you know, there's certain scenes that you look forward to. I love the scene. I don't think she has any lines where she has her dark glasses on. She's eating ice cream and smoking a cigarette. As a diabetic. Yeah. (laughs) Killing herself in plain view. And also I had my my beloved Jeremy to play with. Yes, Jeremy Irons. You did something at that point in your career when, when things were as hot as they could be in Hollywood, of course, and you chose to go back to Broadway not long after those films that we've just been talking about to go and do two different Broadway productions that both turned out very nicely, Tony's for both and wonderful, the play Death of the Maiden in 1992 and the musical Sunset Boulevard in 1994. What drove those decisions to go and do those? I mean, people talk about always as actresses get into their 40s, they find fewer choice roles or whatever. That didn't seem to be the case for you. You were plugging along, and, and then when you came back, continued to do so. So was it just that there was something about those particular opportunities in Broadway that were just irresistible to you? Working with Mike Nichols. Yeah. <laughs> you reason. don't turn that down. Right. And we had been together in The Real Thing. Mike, as everyone knows, was a, was a genius. And it was an intriguing play. I played a woman who had been tortured in South America and she thinks one day that she hears the voice of her torturer whose car has gotten a flat tire and the husband goes to the... So, and I was working with Gene Hackman and Richard Dreyfus and Mike Nichols. <laughs> but it's really funny that because I think I remember, I remember, I think even in print, people saying, oh, too bad she can't get jobs in film, so she's coming back to theater. Look what people are doing now. Mm-hmm. And I always have said, the English do it, why don't we? Mm-hmm. Why isn't it accepted to go that between you them. can go back and forth because it's all part of, of your craft? But I remember that. I remember that very clearly. But it was a great workout, that play. It was really hard. Yeah. But to spend time with Mike 
and just spend six months with Richard and, and Gene, who are two of our great actors, you know. And then for Andrew Lloyd Webber, Sunset Boulevard started in L.A. And I think what people maybe didn't realize, because you had not really been seen singing since becoming famous in films. So I think a lot of people were surprised to find that you could more than hold your own as a singer on, on eventually on Broadway with that as well. Was that kind of exciting to get to deploy that skill for the first time again now that people were really aware of who you were? It was terrifying yeah. because the level of singing in that show yeah. is daunting. And I have to say, in an incredibly gifted ensemble that was put together out here in L.A., I was the worst singer. Really? Yeah. And I learned really how to really sing during the run of that, mm -hmm. during the first run of that show. I would work for half an hour every day. Of course, I took voice lessons during, I mean, I could sing, but that's singing. Yeah. I mean, I took voice lessons during rehearsals. And then during the run, I would work with our conductor, Paul Bogev, for half an hour every day before half hour. And I would have, I think I remember in L.A., I had two significant breakthroughs. The second one happened, unfortunately, right after we did the, <laughs> the album. But it was thrilling. And one of the greatest parts ever written for a woman, mm -hmm. ever, ever. It's genius on Billy Wilder. I had the privilege of seeing one of the last performances of this revival that you just came through in maybe a year ago, right? It was great. And I understand you may be bringing it to the screen as yes. well? As yes. a musical again. As a musical, wow. yes. That's awesome. It was during that first run of Sunset Boulevard that I believe you heard from this company that you grew up on, Disney, saying, hey, we want you to come work for us as a villain. What did you make of this? Was that an immediate yes when they asked you to come play Corella DeVille in 101 Dalmatians? Pretty much yes, because I had grown up on the great Disney animated features and also through my daughter, had kind of revisited them. And she's basically the witch. You know, she's it's the iconic witch part. And you need to have a witch in order for children, in this case dogs, to be rescued and come from darkness into light. So mm -hmm. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. When you analyze it, they always remove the mother from fairy tales and from most cartoons or, you know, animated features so that darkness can threaten. Right. The great thing about Cruella is I realized very fast that the meaner I was, the funnier <laughs> she was. You gave a lot of people nightmares, a lot of yeah, kids right. nightmares. <laughs> so, you know, you talked about the ex sort of expectations of what a movie star should or shouldn't do in terms of theater, going in the middle of all this, you know, success to go back to the theater. Let's talk about television, which since the advent of TV, performers who had become stars in the movies or in other words, movie stars, would, I know, always occasionally make a TV movie or miniseries, and you did that uh, throughout your career to, to great acclaim. And I just want to list for people a reminder, 1979, Too Far to Go, 1984, Something About Amelia, 1991, Sarah Plain and Tall, 1993, Skylark, 1995, Serving in Silence, 1997, In the Gloaming, 2003, as we mentioned, Lion in Winter, all of those wonderful. You got a lot of acclaim and, and Emmy nominations and wins for those. But prior to you, followed, I guess, very soon after by both Sally Field and Holly Hunter, it was considered a step in the wrong direction to go and actually do a series. Because 
I guess that, that was just the perception that TV was the lesser art form. So I, I guess I wonder, what was it that convinced you, ahead of everybody else realizing it, that it was actually the place to go with, starting with The Shield in 2005 when you joined it in its fourth season? I'm a sucker for material. And again, I think if the English do it, why don't we? And I don't always, you know, people talk about momentum, momentum in film. And I think there have been times in my career when I've lost momentum in film because I have chosen to go to TV. But I've always believed in television. I mean, from the very beginning, but it had to do with material and great writing and, and a good team. So... The Shield was a fantastic experience, great writing. So then you you had a short gap of, I guess, two years before you decided to come back and do Damages. Damages, yeah. And it was because of The Shield. It was FX. I love John Landgraf. Mm -hmm. Because your initial inclination was to turn it down, right? So how did he... The Shield, oh, John Landgraf, the head writer, and the guy who was the head of FX at the high... John was, I think, head of production. The guy who was Peter actually... Peter Ligori, yeah. Peter Ligori. They all three came to my <laughs> little apartment in the village <laughs> to convince me to do The Shield. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was actually John Landgraf and how he talked about... His, you know, And he's not changed over these years. He is extraordinary in his support of the artist, mm-hmm. which begins with the writer. Mm-hmm. And it was really largely because of what John said that I would do it. So when they came back to me for damages, again, it was an extraordinary pilot script. We should just remind listeners, this is Patty Hughes, a ruthless liar, keeps people around her very off balance for for better or worse. You were on from 2007 to 2012, the first three seasons on FX and then DirecTV. The fact that you went back to do damages after doing The Shield would suggest that you were not deterred by the fact that I guess it seems that doing a TV series is inherently very different than doing a theatrical production or a film in that you have no real idea where your character or the story is going, right? Did that shake you at all? I was very nervous about it. I had never done anything like that. First of all, you sign your life away for potential (laughs) six years. And our writers, I just said to them, Todd Kessler being the head writer, just don't betray me by writing one thing and then three episodes later reading the complete opposite. And they they never did. It was extraordinary. Again, I went for the material. If I had three fantastic movie scripts, I would have done that, but I didn't. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about that is, is I, I just, you know, I thought it's worth the risk. Mm-hmm. It's just worth the risk. Somehow in the middle of that run... You also managed to finally realize this goal of 20-something years of bringing Albert Knobs to the screen. I think you also co-wrote and produced the adaptation. Again, this is a woman living as a man in 1800s Ireland. You're now going back to a character 30 years after first playing her. I mean, that's got to be an interesting experience to return to a character after that many years. Yeah. Were you different? Was it different? Oh, totally different. Yeah. Totally different. I mean, I'm glad that it actually didn't happen until later. So when Bonnie Curtis and I, I'd met her doing the Chum Scrubber, and she's a wonderful producer. Mm -hmm. And I gave her the script and said, I want to film this before I die. So we really clicked. And we, that was five years by when I gave her the script and when we actually ended up making it. Mm -hmm. I had bought the rights and all that kind of thing to develop it. But anyway, I didn't know whether I was still right to play the part. 
I believed in the story, but I didn't want it to be a kind of ego trip thing. I, I had to convince myself that after all these years, and I'd done it in 74, I think, was it that far away? I think 82. Eight, oh, no, that's, 82. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what I did is Rodrigo Garcia was on as the director, and Matthew Mungle is a great friend of mine, this great um, special effects artist. And I called Matthew and said, could you have a whack at, at making me this character? And I think Van Ramsey, who had done all of Sarah Plain and Tall and several other things with me, he got a costume from Western Costumes, and everybody was in on it. I didn't have to pay for it. It was all like this experiment. And I went over to Matthew's, and somebody brought in a, a wig, you know, a short man's wig. And he did something very subtle with the end of my nose and with my earlobes and gave me a little bit of a plumper in my lower lips. And there came a point when he was finished that I look in the mirror. My worry was people knew my face a lot. And I thought, number one, have I outgrown it? And number two, will people be distracted by the fact that it's my face? Mm -hmm. But whatever subtle things Matthew did, I looked up. And it wasn't me anymore. And I started crying because mm -hmm. I thought, there she is. It was an amazing moment. And so from that moment, we really clicked in. And the thrilling thing is that Matthew, who did Janet and my very subtle, beautiful makeup and designed it, and then Marcia Conville, who I'd worked with for years, did our two wigs. They got nominated for an yeah, Oscar. That was great. For that work. I know you'd mentioned that the costumes were very important in this one, too, and also kind of along with the movements, very influenced by your choice by one Charlie Chaplin, right? Yes, yes. How did, just in the sense that he was never quite comfortable in his own clothes out in the world? Yes, and I also thought something that there was something about a sad clown, a clown-like vibe around Albert. You know, however she got her suit, she couldn't, it was, so I wanted the shoes to be a little too big and the pants to be a little too long. And it worked. And I actually experimented with the pants. I said, would it be funnier if her pants were too short? And we, nah, Charlie Chapman yeah, was right. yeah. And, and I, I had him very much in mind because I think there was something kind of touchingly humorous mm -hmm. sometimes about it. Yeah. So that was now 23 years after that most recent prior nomination. Another one for you, number six. And I have to say, leading into the next film I want to ask you about, if this isn't number seven, I think the Academy should just shut down because what I want to ask you about <laughs> is a movie that I saw at, I actually had heard such great things that I extended my stay at the Toronto Film Festival last year to see the second screening of The Wife, which is a movie directed by Bjorn Runga. And this is adapted from Meg Wolitzer's novel of the same name. You play Joan Castleman, a woman who begins to reconsider her life choices after her husband wins the 1992 Nobel Prize in Literature. He is played by Jonathan Price. And it is awesome. You're particularly extraordinary in it. And I, I felt like watching it, you're just watching a pot of water boil and boil and boil. And you're just in some ways dreading, but you can't turn away to see what's going to happen when this boils over. And so uh, without a bunny this time, I should add. <laughs> so I guess let's first start with how did it first cross your radar? I think I first heard about it through my agent. 
Franklin Latt, CAA, and they had the script. Oh, it went as as any difficult to get made independent film. It went through a lot of incarnations as far as who was involved at what time. But I always, once I read it, I said yes. And so whatever I my I said you you know attach my name to it. Mm-hmm. I want to do it. And it came down to you know I mean to hear how Rosalie Swedland and and all the other producers came on. Rosalie was kind of the the driving force. It came down to, they, they told me that Bjorn was going to fly over from Sweden. He was directing the death of a salesman on stage, I think, in Stockholm. He came over, and we had breakfast, Cafe Clooney, just around the corner in the West Village. I think we must have spent about two hours together. And for me, it was just instinctive. It was, a, you know, you kind of sit there, you're looking at his body language, you're kind of feeling the atmosphere of the person and what he's talking about and how he talks about actors, the fact that he was an accomplished stage director, writer, film director. I kind of thought, and I think he is, in Standing on the Shoulders of Bergman, I think. So I said, yeah, I would like to make this film and with you. Had you played, I'm trying to think of all these different characters that we've been talking about, is there anyone who is revealed in quite the same way. A lot of reviews and things have, have likened it to peeling an onion, just as we discover so many different layers to a character who initially, as is kind of hinted at in the title, you kind of just assume is the archetypal, you know, the way that a lot of movies have treated just the wife. And then you realize that that is grossly under crediting her in so many different ways. And I just wonder, you know, in terms of the unfolding of uh, being able to expose those layers of the character. Had you ever had anything quite like that before? No. I I don't like to repeat emotional territory (laughs) in my exploration. I found her very, very tricky. We spent a week around the table uh, reading, really, really going through the script with a very fine-tooth comb, me asking, you know, what could seem obvious, stupid questions. Because I had to answer for myself, why doesn't she leave him? Mm -hmm. And in the answering of that question, I really felt I dug very deep into the character and got to know her and what her journey had been before the time that you you see her. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about something that I referenced in my little write-up after seeing it in Toronto. And I know it's weird to quote oneself, but I'm going to do it because I want to get your take on this quote. In the wake of last November's election and all that has followed, there's something extra moving about watching an older, smart, and accomplished woman who has been wronged by her husband in more ways than one, but nevertheless stood by him, quote, a stoic wife with repressed rage, close quote, as the film itself winkingly describes Close's character, come to realize her own worth and stand up for herself. In fact, at one point in the middle of the movie, it even caused the audience to break into applause, close quote. Obviously, you were making the movie before whatever happened in November of 2016. We all know about that. But do you think there there is some deeper resonance to watching this happen to this woman? Yeah. What I love about this movie is that what we ended up creating with a, a very, very close collaboration of all of us was a highly complex, very specific relationship. And I think the more specific you can be, Funnily enough, the more it can universally resonate with people, they will bring to it and take away from it whatever it is that they have in their life. But it will 
it will be an authentic resonance and an authentic emotion. So I think this movie in its specificity has a very powerful impact. There is sort of, an, and this has come up in a number of conversations we've done on this podcast, not just wives in general, but specifically women and as they get older in life are just increasingly invisible to a lot of society, right? So this is a woman who is the driving force behind a lot of the things that she gets no credit for at all. But I think in some ways, the Iron Lady was another one where you're looking at somebody not during her prime ministership, after her prime ministership, when she could just be another person on the subway. In fact, I think in one scene she is. Here, similarly, this is just the person who maybe nobody takes any time to even... She has to introduce herself. Yeah. 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 It's just, you, you cringe when you think of it. And also, you know, again, I, I know it's applying things that were not in the equation when you made the film, but also in light of the stuff that's happened in the last, in the year since it was at Toronto with what we found out about the way women are treated in this business and other business. I mean, this is a woman who met her husband when he was her professor, which I guess was less strange at the, or not as uncommon at the time, but... I don't know. In the 50s, are pretty scandalous. It was still. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, to to leave school with a old, you know, a man who's older than you. And strange I think uh, you know, any anybody who has an affair with a student is not looked on as... Not great. Yeah. So what is it that you hope people will leave this film thinking, taking away from it? I think I, I would love it if they, if they, it has great resonance in it and they can... It, it'll engender real self-reflection and conversation, especially for women, for them to to try to assess, are they fulfilled? You know, are they fulfilled as, as individuals, as humans? Would you have urged her to handle things differently than she did? That's why I say it's a very specific story in a specific time, because she came of age in a time pre-feminism, mm-hmm. and she was following in the pattern of what was expected of women. So she fit herself into that. She, in one way, was fulfilled, but in the other way, I think, has huge guilt. Mm -hmm. About essentially betraying herself. Certainly she has guilt about her children, specifically her son, who's having such a hard time, Mm -hmm. and the basic dishonesty. But, it, you know, it's again, it's, it's specific because she, I can't say this. <laughs> we won't, no spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah. But it really is a, some of the revelations here in the movie. Your jaw is just on the floor. So <laughs> I guess to close after revisiting so many of these major moments in your career, I just want to ask you, as you look back, is there something generally that you would say you are proudest of about this career? And also looking forward, what's still left on the to-do list? Oh, my God. I look at my watch every day thinking, do I have enough time? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much. Yeah. I think, well, my very first job way back in New York, that fall of 1974, first rehearsal with Hal Prince, Love for Love, a wonderful English actress. She was kind of a supernumerary and wonderful character. And she said to me, one of the most destructive things you can do is compare your career to someone else's. Mm-hmm. And I think this is certainly a profession that it's very hard not to do that. And I try that. I try to do that because, and then you want to own what your own career has been. And I think 
I guess what I'm proud of is that I've created things, I've produced things, I've, you know, I did five things for Hallmark back when it was where TV, you know, quality TV, yeah. it was before, you know, pre-HBO. TV movies, yeah. Yeah, and two things, I, I still am passionate about material, about story, that's what we do, right? We interpret stories to move people in one way or another. That's the gift of, of doing what we do. And also to try to stay very specific about what I think is good. Because what else are you going to, how else are you going to choose something? I've done a lot of things where I don't get any money, but as an artist, you, you grow. So yeah, if you can stick to your own innate sense of what is good and keep driving yourself to explore new territory in the great, great, in infinite human condition. It's been an incredible ride so far. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply